0: For trans people, the path to self-actualization is a lifelong journey.
1: There's no such thing as the dude pill or the lady pill that you just get to take, and then you're done transitioning.
0: On today's program, we explore transgender health with two people who know the issues intimately.
1: Um, I don't know if I'll ever consider myself to be transitioned, like past tense, because I also hope that I never stop growing in so many other aspects of my life.
0: This is the Hear Me Now podcast from the Providence Institute for Human Caring. Hello, I'm Sean Collins. Thanks for spending time with us today. As a journalist, I've been tempted to begin the program today by measuring the trans experience in some way, as if knowing the number of people who are in the midst of gender transition would somehow lend gravitas to the topic. But the truth is, I don't know the number. I don't think anyone knows the number. The federal government doesn't track gender nonconformity and the related healthcare issues, so we lack some of the key data sources that we would normally turn to, to bolster arguments about health and wellness. What I can say is that I think the important number is one. For the person whose gender or gender expression is at odds with the sex that they were assigned at birth, their journey to wholeness or to uh, fullness of their sense of self, that's an individual journey a pilgrimage of self-discovery undertaken by one human being, bravely, one person at a time. That's why I say the important number is one. But I can also tell you that a growing number of health professionals are recognizing their role in assisting transgender and gender non-conforming people find safe and effective ways to be comfortable with themselves, with their gendered selves, in order to maximize their overall health and their psychological well-being and their self-fulfillment and happiness. On today's program, we've invited two healthcare professionals to join us and to talk about trans health, both at professional clinical experience and both have personal experience with the constellation of issues that trans people face when they seek medical care. Bennett Pendleton is a registered nurse who spent the first 10 years of his career in the emergency department, and now cares for patients in the post-anesthesia care unit at Providence Portland Medical Center in Oregon. He has been presenting education to the healthcare community about caring for patients who are transgender for the past three years. Erica Lorenz is a licensed marriage and family therapist who works as a crisis counselor at the Providence Hospital Centralia in Washington State. She's a former police officer, and in addition to her work in the hospital, she's worked to improve the treatment of jailed transgender individuals in custody in Olympia. And she maintains a private practice as a therapist. I'm grateful to both Erica and Bennett for taking the time today to talk about the issues trans people face as they navigate the healthcare system and to let us listen in. Their lived experiences are incredibly valuable to all of us who are interested in seeing the best care possible become the standard of care.
2: So I'm Erica and I work at Providence Hospital, Centralia, and I am a crisis counselor there.
1: All right, I'm Bennett, and I work at Providence Portland Medical Center, and I currently am a nurse in the PACU, the recovery room. Do you want to tell your story a little bit, Erica?
2: Sure. Um, I think people often, people that aren't trans often think that it's uh, kind of a switch that we flip and that. We were something, we were some persona or something, and then we became something else. And that's not my experience at all. And I don't think it's the experience of most trans people. So when I was little, I knew that I'd been assigned uh, male, but I didn't feel like a boy. And often, like almost always, um, I prayed at night that um, God would make me the girl that I was. And and interesting, you know, that happened, but not on the timetable I was expecting when I was four or five years old. So I got to live pretty freely as a girl. My dad worked two jobs and wasn't home much. And my mom allowed me to be who I am. And then about 10, when I was 10, my parents decided that enough was enough. And I was about to enter puberty and they didn't want anybody, I think they were trying to protect me. And so um, they humiliated me in a way that I stopped dressing in girls clothes, but I never stopped behaving like a girl. I never, I never played with boys. And that went all through my whole life. Uh, even in the military, I didn't act like one of the guys. Sometimes people would notice and say, hey, you're not doing this or that with us. And I was like, yeah, well, I'm off. I had a camera. I would take pictures of the places and uh, write poetry, and they knew that, and somehow they were okay with it. uh, When I was 33, 34 years old, I was a patrol officer. And uh, one night I found a trans woman, So a person who was assigned male at birth, um, who was psychotic and running between houses. And I uh, convinced her to get into the cruiser with me and brought her to the emergency department where uh, she had a psych eval. And I remember driving her to the hospital thinking that I had more in common with her than I did my patrol partner who was sitting next to me in, in the front seat of the cruiser. And that was kind of my reawakening and so i told my partner and that ended that relationship and from that point on from my mid-30s every relationship that i've been in i've been out but i wasn't out at work because i knew i'd be instantly fired and later um, i had the opportunity to come out and i've been out for close to 10 years and as liberal as olympia is I was one of the very first people to transition in the group health system, which was uh, the name of the hospital before Kaiser in Olympia. So one of the major medical centers. So that's kind of it. It's, you know, it happens in little steps. It doesn't happen all at once. How about you? Similarly, so I think it's important
1: for people to understand that there's no such thing as the the dude pill or the lady pill that you just get to take and then you're done transitioning. Um, it's an ongoing process that, um, I don't know if I'll ever consider myself to be transitioned like past tense. Um, because I, I also hope that I never stop growing in so many other aspects of my life. And so I feel like this is just one of them, but, um, I come from a family where I have two older brothers. One is four years older and one is two years older and then a twin sister or fraternal but I always had this mirror of what I wasn't because there was this girl and we were called the girls and I wasn't one of the girls. Mm -hmm. Um, And so my brothers, I was really, all of us kids are really close. There's four kids in four years. Um, And so I, you know, I did the things that they did. I peed standing up. Um, I wore just swim bottoms without the swim top. Um, And I think when I was about five or six, my mom sat me down and said, okay, if you want to play outside with the other kids with swimming and in the water, then you need, I will, you either need to wear the bikini top or I'll take you to buy you a new suit. It's a one piece suit. And so I went and did that. And um, I just always, my whole life felt other than like something was wrong. Um, And, you know, there's this level of dysphoria where, You know, you see genitalia that doesn't match your insides and it causes problems. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And so I was just, you know, underlyingly uncomfortable. My whole upbringing grew up in a small town and um, had the benefit of swimming. And so I went off to college and swam for four years at a division one college and that's swam I'm for a year professionally after that for Nike. And I really attribute that to saving my life because my head was literally underwater for six hours a day. And I was so exhausted that I couldn't do anything dumb. Like I was unable to have time to really delve into this aspect of my life, which helped me get through my teens and early twenties. Um, and then I met uh, my wife. We've been married for 11 years now and she loves me for me and sees me for, for who I am. Um, and then with the the twin aspect of things, I had a dream one day that my old swim coach who's super um, conservative and um, runs with the tea party groups had that. I told him that I was trans. And so I woke up from the dream and my sister called that day and I told her that story and kind of laughed. And she goes, And I said, because, you know, because I would never say that. And she goes, what, you would never tell Rex or you just aren't trans. And I kind of caught myself and realized I had somewhat outed myself to her and told her. And she was the first person I ever said anything to. And so we saw each other a few weeks later and she kind of pinned me down and asked me flat out. And I said, I don't know. And she said, just so you know, if you are, then the family's going to love you even more. And all the nieces and nephews, or think of the, think of how much you'll be able to teach the nieces and nephews. And that kind of gave me enough strength to know that at least one person in the world wouldn't ostracize me for being myself. And it's amazing that, you know, really, for me, at least it really just took one person. And granted, it was my twin. So it was somebody that I was the closest with to say, it's okay. And I see you for you. And I love you for you. And that was so powerful that um, I went home and I told my wife and she started laughing. And I was like, but I'm trans. This is, this is an awful thing. And she said, no, I thought that, I thought that you were cheating on me. This is great news. We can deal with you being trans. We can't deal with you cheating on me. So um, just a little, so just, you know, the ball started rolling and so I came out very publicly at work in um, the summer of 2016. And now I provide education to the the local Providence system um, about caring for transgender patients and about, epic and you know just the whole kit and caboodle and each time that i give the presentation it gives me a little bit more strength and a little bit more bravery because i stand up and out myself at the beginning of the presentation and i never know who's going to be in the room and if there's going to be somebody in the room that day that wants to cause me harm because statistically speaking there are plenty of people out there still um but i've had really great responses and um the nieces and nephews are—they know who I am, and it's nice to see through things through their eyes. Um, but I guess that I wish that I want people to know that when you're caring for patients in a healthcare setting, you're going to come across patients that are in all different stages of transitioning. Whether there's no physical transition, no social transition yet, you might be the first person that they tell, and just understand that there's different stages of it.
2: Uh, one thing that's similar. Um, And for my story and your story is there was an activity that kept me sane through my teens.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: And for me, um, and it's the most ironic thing, um, when I was 12, I just turned 12, my father put me in the car one night and he said he was bringing me to a Boy Scout meeting and I started crying and he goes, your mother's had too much of an influence on you. I have to make you a boy. Wow. And so I got to the meeting, and the scoutmaster apparently decided that I had no potential at all, and he had a special patrol for those of us that had no potential. And so we all went camping the next weekend, and I was appalled that they didn't eat together, that everybody brought their own food and, and cooked their own food and ate alone. And I grew up in a family where we all ate together. And I grew up helping my mom cook my whole life. And so the next scout meeting, um, without talking to my parents or anything, I, I we all sat down in our like our little patrol meeting and I said, uh, if it's okay with all of you, I would like to plan a menu and do all the cooking next camping trip. And we, we did that once a month. And I said, oh, you just have to pay me your share. And I'll do all that. And... Um, I added, because I hate washing dishes, that you'll wash the dishes, and they're really cool. So I went home and I said, Mom, I need to learn how to plan menus for eight people. (laughs) I need need you to teach me how to cook something that I can uh, do camping. And she said, okay. So um, she taught me how to make spaghetti from scratch, spaghetti sauce. And so that was my first meal. And it was a wonderful success. Everybody loved the food, and I loved to cook. And and then the other thing that happened was my mother told me that uh, she did not support me going into scouting, and she would not iron my uniform, and she would not sew on my patches, but she would teach me how to iron and sew on my patches. And so I joined Boy Scouts, and I learned how to iron and sew <laughs> and curate people. <laughs> and there's some out.
1: boy scouts lead, boy scout leaders turning over in their graves right now i'm sure
2: <laughs> it turned out to be a really good experience for me because i got um, to be the mom of the patrol
1: <laughs> that's wonderful i feel i had an experience um with my dad who's super supportive we've always been very close and when i came out to him he said that he felt like i had died because he lost a daughter
0: hmm.
1: And it took him a while to come around to the fact my point to him, you know, he's a physician. I was like, I'm not changing overnight. There's no shot I can take to change instantaneously. And so my point to him was that I was still the same person on my insides. I've been this person since I was born. <laughs> you know, we had two tiny little kids at the time. I wasn't sleeping because of children. And that, you know, physically and socially transitioning is so challenging that my life had to hit enough of a bottom that that seemed like the better alternative to go ahead and go through all the physical pain and emotional pain and, you know, coming out again and again and again. And so I want to make sure that people understand that it's not, you know, I personally didn't just choose this on a whim. This is who I am. This is who I've always been. And Now, I feel like I'm a much better parent, a much better partner, a much better nurse, because I don't have this big black cloud hanging over me that's weighing on me so much. And so now I feel like I can be my authentic self without baggage, or with less baggage, I suppose. I think we all have baggage.
2: I'd I'd say the same thing. One of the reasons that I chose a marriage and family therapy program as opposed to a licensed mental health counselor program the marriage and family therapy program was a full year longer than the licensed mental health counselor program. And it's a harder to, uh, license to obtain uh, is because it was clear to me that uh, parents and, and sometimes other family members go through a grieving process when we transition. And I wanted to have a practice where I was able to help the families as a whole and not just the person who's transitioning. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I think that that's so important to have acceptance in some aspect of your life. And if, you know, if you're going through transitioning and you don't have acceptance from your family, then you have to find a chosen family. Um, yes. And I'm lucky enough to have great support from my family, but yet I still have a chosen family because there still are some things that you just can't talk about um, with your family. And who might not be able to understand, so.
2: I think that's right. And I I want to echo what you said, too, about um, choosing to transition. On some level, it doesn't feel like a choice at all, because I certainly didn't choose to be transgender. And we now know biologically that uh, trans people are biologically trans. But I did choose to transition. And my sense myself my partner who's also trans and um the trans people that i interact with transitioning is often the very last thing the very last option available before suicide um right we try our very best to uh be the people that society expects us to be and um i certainly had a lot of fear when i transitioned when I transitioned around 2010, 2011, the statistic was one out of 13 trans women were murdered. Wow. And so it seemed to, and that turns out to not be true. Um, it, was, it was statistically invalid because the sample size was too small. There were more trans people than the uh, people who did that study realized. Um, but I stepped into uh, transitioning with the sense that I had a one in 13 chance of being killed, murdered, Uh, and still uh, transitioning was, it was life-saving for me.
1: Mm -hmm. I completely agree. I think that it, it is life-saving in so many ways. And it gives me hope that things are changing where, you know, teenagers are now being able to, go on hormone blockers so that they can wait until they're a little bit older to start taking hormones. And it gives me hope for the next generations. Um, Just the power that their voice carries now.
0: That's Bennett Pendleton, a registered nurse and trans man joining us from Portland and with us from Olympia, Erica Lorenz, a hospital-based crisis counselor and trans woman. They'll continue their conversation in just a minute. Stay with us. This is the Hear Me Now podcast from the Providence Institute for Human Caring. Back now with the conversation between Erica Lorenz and Bennett Pendleton.
1: The first time I went to see a provider for trans-related healthcare, they asked me on the phone before I came in what my um, preferred name was and what pronouns I was using. And then they had a whiteboard outside of all the rooms and they wrote it up on the whiteboard outside the room. So when the door was closed and I was in the office. Um Everybody walking in the room gets that last little reminder. And mm. it was very important. It was really nice to be finally called by the name that I felt like fit and not called by my old name. Um, and I think that 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 in and of itself is such a sign of acceptance from patients, um, from a, a patient perspective. I think that that's really the first step is to make sure that somewhere in the chart is delineated names and pronouns. And also to realize and recognize that as a person goes through a physical and social transition, that the name oftentimes will change and progress. Um, It oftentimes will move along until the legal documents are changed and you can get it legally changed. So it's officially changed on the chart. Um, It just is an absolute sign of respect of humanity. I feel like
2: I agree. And I transitioned before um, any of what you just described happened. And so uh, sitting in the waiting room for my doctor, um, uh, people would, somebody would come out and say, Mr. Lorenz and look, Mr. Lorenz. And there I was socially transitioned. So I'm, I'm wearing a skirt and, and it's humiliating and, so I completely agree with you on that. The other thing that happens even when people are well-meaning is um, they will properly gender the patient who's trans and then turn maybe to a nurse or, or to a co-worker in the room with the patient and misgender the patient in in third party speech. And so Interacting with you on a respectful basis, and then turning to somebody else and using the wrong pronoun, and that's so deflating. It's so difficult. And what I I'm a bit of a warrior, and so I say I just insert she when if they say he, and most people catch themselves. They mostly don't realize they've done it, and um, and things go along fine. But not everybody can do that, and. And so just to be extra aware that uh, whenever we're referring to somebody in third person um, to get the pronoun right. The other thing, and I know you know this too, is for non-binary people uh, mm-hmm. to use they, them or, or what other pronoun that they choose. Um, and some people rebel against that and say, well, they, them is plural, but. It's not. If you went to the movie last night and you said, "I oh, I, I went with a friend and I I'm, I might say, well, did they like it? So there's a friend. And if I don't know the gender of the friend, I use they, them.
1: Yeah. And I think that they, them is, is challenging uh, for people to use who haven't used it because it feels we're so ingrained in our culture to use she and he and his and hers. And a lot of it is that practice makes perfect. and. If you can't, I always tell staff, if you can't remember the patient's name or pronoun walking into a room, practice it outside the room. Say it 10 times in your head. They, 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 and then go in the room. It's okay to practice like that. And then also telling staff that it's okay to mention that's an important piece of the patient's past medical history to pass along to other providers and other caregivers. It's not gossipy to say, hey, the patient in room 16 is transgender. They, when you walk in, they might appear female, but they use male pronouns. They go by this name. That's not a gossipy thing. I've had staff say, well, I don't want to talk bad about people and gossip. It's, it's a totally pertinent aspect to providing culturally conscious health care to that patient at that time.
2: I totally agree. And I do the same thing. Um, if I go into a room and a, there's a trans person or non-binary person, I... I, I learn their name, their pronouns, which may be different from what's in the chart. And then I directly go to the nurse and make sure the nurse knows. And and often the nurse says, oh, yeah, I know that. And great. It's wonderful. Um, but no, it's not gossiping. It's, it's part of care.
1: Right. I think that some of the barriers to that is lack of education among staff members. And I think that, um, you know, I've given in the last year, I think I, Calculated, I gave about 40 talks in the last 12 months Mm -hmm. and got really great reception from the caregivers with a lot of good questions about specific examples that had happened, for instance. And I think that a lot of people want the education. It's just difficult to find, um, at least, you know, within the Providence system at this time. And I'm really hopeful that that knowing that staff want this, you know, they're kind of like. Jonesing for the education in some regards, but it can be provided more regularly and just give people a chance to to ask questions um, and to feel in a safe position so that they're not asking these questions of a patient. I'd rather have them ask these questions of me if they have a question um, at that time rather than asking a patient in the moment.
2: I totally agree. I've done uh, a lot of the same kind of training, less so at Providence Centralia. Um, But I do that kind of training for uh, state government agencies and for other government agencies, uh, city or county level, tribal. And the response is always really positive. Um, Not everybody in the room, but but the overall response is always positive. And I think it's important to provide a safe place for people to have that discussion. Mm -hmm. The other thing I want to add is that... I'm not perfect, and and nobody's perfect, and we're going to sometimes misgender, and then I'll make a mistake with a pronoun, and I'll instantly catch myself and apologize. And I think uh, that's really important that to not make a huge deal about apologizing, but also not be embarrassed and, and not say anything, but just uh, apologize and move on.
1: Right. I tell a story about um, I was asked to go in and start an IV on a difficult um, IV access patient, and I used an ultrasound machine to do so. And so, you know, you're in there for I don't know, 10 to 15 minutes. And the nurse that was the primary nurse for this patient came in, and there were a couple family members in the room, and said, "Oh, Bennett is great at this. She'll take great care of you." Caught herself, the nurse caught herself in messing up my pronoun, and then made a big deal about correcting it. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I've only done it twice this week. I've only, I cannot figure this out. But in doing so, outed me to the patient and the family standing in the room. And I don't know these people at all. I have no relationship with them yet. I have no idea if one of the family members is going to follow me out to my car at the end of my shift. Um, you know, Putting me in an unsafe situation, all out of great intentions. She was very apologetic and wanted to show me respect by, by correcting herself. But again, the bigger the deal is made out of it, then the bigger the deal is made out of it. If you simply apologize, if this nurse would have said, Bennett is great at this, she, I mean, he will get this on the first try, nobody would have presumed anything. And I would have been able to get out of the room safely. As it is, I had to, to excuse myself from starting the IV because then at that point, I was shaking because I was worried about
2: safety. Yeah. Well, and um, I don't pass. People know by my voice that I'm trans. And I. Uh... Unfortunately, my mom was close to six inches above normal for the woman in her generation. My dad was four or five inches taller than the average man, six inches taller than the average man. And so I'm big boned and I've got this voice and there's no doubt in anyone's mind when I walk in the room what gender I was assigned at birth. And I have all those same considerations going through my head. I don't know these people and I don't know how they're going to react. And I want them to, I want to prove I'm there to care for them, right? And mm-hmm. the interesting thing is, my experience has been that nobody has said, we don't want you. I've even offered that occasionally when when it seemed like the patient was having a difficult time. I'll actually stop and say, um, you know, I, I don't I can see something's going on. I, I'm not sure what it is. If my gender is a problem for you, maybe I can find another care provider. And so far, everybody has said, no, 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 that's And then they'll apologize and they'll identify something else that was causing some anxiety, affirming that I properly read the anxiety and letting me know that the anxiety had nothing to do with me. And so my experience of being a caregiver at Providence has been profoundly positive, even with all the worries that you mentioned. So as a crisis counselor, I I do the mental health evaluations in the emergency room. And um, trans people have a higher, significantly higher than average rate of attempted suicide because of the, the stress of being trans in this culture. and. Uh, when a patient identifies as trans, or non-binary, some whatever, um, I always ask, um, "Do your your parents know, or or whoever?" Um, mm-hmm. And I always give them the option of, of you know, in informed consent, that um, that absolutely nothing, as long as they're over th- um, twelve, if they're thirteen or older. That nothing they say, I will repeat to their parents, or whatever portion of what they say, I'll repeat to their parents, or everything. And so, giving them that freedom so that they can chunk out what they want me to share and what they don't want me to share.
1: We'll talk about that with the staff in the emergency room setting, also, about if somebody's there for belly pain. And they're transgender, you might need to think outside the box and think, you know, if it's a trans man like myself, maybe it's an ovarian torsion. No. And before you speak with the patient about that, you need to make sure that everybody in the room, all of the visitors in the room are okay, or that the patient is okay with being outed. And so, I, you know, I always tell staff to say something to the effect of, we're going to talk about really deep personal medical history. Mm-hmm. Is it okay to discuss in front of these visitors here would you like me to escort them out to the waiting room and then that way i'm the bad cop i get to be the one to ask them to leave instead of putting the patient in that position at that time um because you know we're with them for a few hours but then the people the visitors that are with them are their safety net and if they're going home to an unsafe location because we've just outed them um that's a whole different ball game at that point
2: Absolutely. And I do the same from a mental health perspective. I'll tell them if there's a visitor, I'll turn to the patient at some point before the eval starts and I'll say, right. Some of the things we're going to talk about are kind of sensitive and, and, you know, if you'd like, um, I'll ask mom and dad uh, to leave. And then, and then as you do bring them out to the waiting room.
0: Yeah,
2: And I, I want to share one of my, patients who was uh, from a very rural uh, town uh, was, um, I was, I called the father on the phone and the, the patient wasn't trans. And uh, so I'm working through whatever issue it was um, on the phone with dad. And um, so I say, this is Erica from Providence, Centralia. And inevitably like, oh, Eric, oh, Eric. And then I say, I'm transgender, and I don't sound like most of the Ericas, you know. And he paused, and he goes, oh, yeah, one of my kids has that. As if it were <laughs> an illness that his childhood contracted, but it was still, there was some acceptance in it, and it was, it was kind of a nice moment. And, and it was also a moment where that anxiety in me drained away because it felt safe to talk to this man.
1: Right. I really enjoy Michelle Obama for a lot of reasons, but something that she said in her book was that it's hard to hate up close. And it really struck a chord with me that when I stand up and out myself, that people who don't know that they know somebody who's trans now know that they know somebody who's trans. And visibility is so important. But at the same time, so is personal safety. And so as a 38-year-old guy that passes who's six feet tall and has broad shoulders, it's safe for me safer for me to out myself than a 17 year old who is still pre you know their their physical appearance doesn't match their gender identity it's i would much rather kind of bear the burden of educating other staff members and other people because i can come at it from a point of strength and stability in my personal life and i think that it's so important for people to know that they know people who are transgender and it hasn't for the you know for the generations before me it hasn't always been safe and while it's not always safe for me hopefully for future generations it's a safe thing because it will just become just everybody knows somebody
2: right so um it's normal for trans people to exist it's not common right yeah At 1%, we're not common, but we are normal.
1: Right. And so many people know somebody who's trans. They just don't know that they know somebody who's trans. Um, That happened to myself as well. I've had two people come out to me since coming out myself who I've known for years, and I had no idea. Mm -hmm. And um, it's really eye-opening to know that I am in the community. And I didn't know that I knew. Um, And we all go through it differently and experience it differently. But there's this underlying current of other than. I remember going to a a sit-down dinner. I don't remember the setting necessarily or the situation. But sitting down, and there were maybe 10 of us, and seeing that somebody across the table um, was gay, they were wearing a rainbow something or other. And I was just like, oh, you're my people. It's going to be okay. And there's this, you know, that's, I think that that's why the LGBT community refers to uh, other people in the LGBT community as family. Yeah. Because you're my family. You see me and it's okay. And I can be my authentic self with you. Um, the nice thing about being trans versus um, being black, for instance, is that I can, I can pass in society and people won't know. You can never take away your skin color. And so, I, you know, there are differences um, among different, you know, different reasons that you fall in the other than category.
2: Yeah. And, and of course, since I don't pass, I, yeah. myself, I go buy a quart of milk and I've outed myself to everybody in the store, right? I walk across the parking lot and I've added myself to everybody. And there are times where that doesn't feel safe at all, right? There How do you deal
0: with
2: that? Well, um, when I'm not at work, I have pepper spray usually, and I do have martial arts training from when I was young. But I'm also 70, just shy of 70, and I don't think I can defend myself anymore. And so um, part of what I do is remind myself that this is the world that women inhabit. Um, mm-hmm. that it's not safe to be a woman and walk from your car to the parking lot or or through the parking lot to the store, right? Sure. Um, and so it's hard. Um, and I do what women do. I look ahead and I walk in directions that I might not want to go in to avoid people that seem like they might hurt me.
0: Yeah
1: that's been one of the more fascinating parts of my um, transition is going from the person that does that, that, you know, make sure that I'm always aware of my surroundings and that things are safe to being seen as the aggressor as passing as a man. I, I never want to make women feel unsafe yet just by nature. I do. And so realizing that instead of, you know, if we're walking down a street and it's at night, I'll go across the street now so that they can continue to walk on the same side of the street so that they don't need to cross the street. And just being aware of that, it's fascinating uh, the social differences of changing um, appearance from a woman to a man. Um, and- but I have to be able to say that it is really nice to be able to hide sometimes, however weird that sounds. Um,
2: I, I get that. It's interesting because there are some parallels um what i get is i have casual conversations with women like going shopping where um if i'm standing in line for the deli a woman will turn to me and say oh i really like your skirt and then we have this whole conversation or i've got a little bit of blue in my hair and people comment on that or I recently, um, I was going down an aisle and a woman who was probably about my age, but about half my height, looked up at me and said, could you get that for me, something on the top shelf? And as a man, that never happened, right? There was that fear, that buffer, and that, that I have become a safe person for at least most of the women in our culture. And There's a sense of belonging that I never had that I relish.
1: Yeah, I miss that. That's one aspect that I miss because I go to the grocery store and people don't make eye contact, don't talk to me, um, you know, kind of keep their head down. And before people would make eye contact and kind of nod at least. Um, It's also fascinating uh, running the gamut as a parent because the kids when I started to transition our children were two and six months old and my wife gave birth to both of the children and we used a sperm donor and um our parenting roles are very 50 50 in our family and in our household and they were expected to be that and then I became me Bennett and the dad and people are like oh my gosh you're such an amazing dad you do so much I'm like, whoa, hang on. I'm only doing 50-50 on a good day. I'm not doing anything above and beyond what I should be doing. But society just sees, you know, people say, if I'm walking down the street with both the kids, oh, you're such a great dad, and I've never even met them before. Um, And it's just fascinating to see. I didn't expect that with transitioning to have the social aspects um, be so, so different.
2: I agree. Um, I have a similar, uh, I put my, so I have a teaching certificate and I put myself through grad school as a substitute teacher. So I I worked a few days a week and I made enough money and kept myself going. And um, uh, one of the duties at the end of the day is I would bring the kids out to the playground and we couldn't release the child until the parent came up and took the child so that strangers didn't take any children or children didn't wander off with somebody that their parents didn't know. And I remember this uh, one day, this little, it was sixth or seventh grade and this girl, she made a beeline away from our group and she ran up to a man and I thought, oh dear, I've lost control, right? (laughs) I'm, (laughs) I'm not a good teacher. And uh, she brought him right back to me, and I thought, oh, good, thank God, right? And um, then I thought, and he was a big guy, and he was walking really fast towards me, and I thought, oh, dear, I might not be safe. And he he stopped, and he said, I just want to thank you for being such a good teacher. My child has been talking about you. I had the class for a week, and, and that never happened before I transitioned, Right, and there's a kind of safety in approaching women that that guys don't get. In yeah, some ways, I think it's an easier gig for me, even though I don't <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's interesting to, to hear that from your perspective. Um, I think that, I mean, I feel, it's weird to say, I feel so blessed to be who I am and to be trans. And I think that a lot of people who aren't in the community would think of it only as a negative thing of like, oh man, that must suck that you're trans. But it really, you know, that's one way to think of it. But I also can think of it as a blessing um, because it's given me a different perspective that nobody other than other trans people will ever have of leading life in the United States as a man and as a woman. Um, and our society is fascinating at a lot of levels.
2: My sense of that is that our culture asks us to give up chunks of who we are. And as a trans person, the culture asked me to give up most of who I was. And transitioning, I got to reclaim all of that. And I have a huge amount of compassion for the, especially people that I interact with in the mental health field, who are there because they've given up chunks of who they are and they don't know how to get them back. And in some ways, having hurt so much for what I gave up, created this pathway for me to reclaim who I am authentically in ways that people who suffer less pain maybe don't have as easily. And so it that's given me, um, Another point of connection with people when I see people who are struggling because they've given up their dream or they've given up some aspect of themselves being trans. There's a way that to relate to cis people to non-transgender people that that forms a connection in an unexpected way.
1: Yeah, I agree. There's a lot of unexpected. I feel like um, there's no book, you know, nobody's, nobody's written a book on how to transition Uh, Because it's different for everybody and, you know, you have expectations going into it and to each different, um, each different phase and step. And I am happy to say I've been pleasantly surprised so far with, and, you know, not to say that there's not negative stuff also, because there's plenty of that, but that's for another conversation, but um, it's nice to have uh, support. And that's been, I mean, that's made the biggest difference in my life is having, support of family and friends and to see them grow alongside of me and to open their minds um, to just being more accepting humans as general in general um, has been kind of an honor to to hold alongside of all of this
2: i agree and i would just add um my colleagues when i started in the emergency room i i'm the first openly trans person that Providence Centralia has hired. Uh, certainly, the first to work in the ER, mm-hmm. and um, I know that we had a person or two transition within the hospital. But um, so here I am. I show up. I'm trans. I don't pass, and and I think doctors and nurses were looking at me like, you know, can you do this job? And now, almost a year later, um, doctors. Well well what do you think, Erica? Right? And it's it's a it's so wonderful.
1: It's nice to be seen as Bennett the human instead of Bennett the trans guy. Um and like you're saying, like you're Erica, the social worker who's fantastic at her job versus, you know, Erica, the person who happened to be hired and openly trans. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that that's the important thing with taking care of patients is to realize that we all come with labels of different sorts. And being transgender is just one label that people might come with into a hospital setting or into a clinic setting. But you take away all of the labels, and the only commonality or the only common thread that we all have is that we're all human. And most of us are scared going into a healthcare setting. And so, you know, if you treat people with respect and uh, remember that underneath all of it, they're scared, and we're human. Um, that as long as you're treating people respectfully, that you'll do a lot better. You, I would, I'd like to say you can't go wrong, but you can always go wrong in every aspect of everything. Um, but I think you know, like you said, even if you mess up on a name or pronoun, just acknowledge it, and move along. You're still respecting the patient, um, and being kind.
2: I agree. When you when you say we all come with labels, it sparked a thought that I want to share. Um, about one out of six people on the autism spectrum is transgender. And so when I have a patient who's trans, I always wonder if they're on the spectrum. And when I have a patient on the spectrum, I always wonder if they're trans. And so... Um, I I try to sort that a little bit, especially in the mental health context. Um, but that's another thing I'd like people to remember is that uh, we all come with labels, but some of us come with more than one label, right? And so black trans women have a harder time of it than a white trans woman, and uh, people who are on the spectrum have a harder time than people that aren't. And, and so you add label upon label, and it, it sometimes it gets to be pretty – I wonder sometimes how people function as well as they do.
1: Right. I think when you mentioned something that you'd like people to – or that as being something that you'd like people to remember, I want to talk for just a minute about um, suicidal ideation, suicidal or suicide attempts as people who are trans, this current or latest statistic is that 40% of people who are transgender have attempted suicide. And the reason being is because of stigma, rejection, lack of acceptance. That is a statistic that we can change. And I think that that is a statistic that we as people in the healthcare sector should pay very close attention to, because that's something that we can control we can be a welcoming place, we can show respect, we can be open and provide caring, um, kindness, and we can change that statistic. Somebody might have been at school that day and been called the wrong name and the wrong pronoun, been made fun of, been bullied, et cetera, and then they come into our healthcare setting and we can show them kindness and that might be the first time in a day, in a week, in a month, that they've had somebody use their proper name, use their proper pronoun, and show them respect. And it's amazing personally that it just takes one person to show kindness when you're so low to be able to help pull you out of that, out of that situation. And we're not talking about thought about suicide. We're talking about attempted suicide. So two out of every five adults have attempted suicide who are trans. Um, That's a big statistic that, that we can change.
2: Absolutely. And in the mental health field, we call that minority stress. The, um, World Health Organization recently reclasping transgender from a mental health issue to uh, an issue of sexual development because we now know that it's biologically driven. But that doesn't mean there isn't a mental health component uh, for trans people. And I believe that the mental health component is largely, not exclusively, but largely minority stress syndrome. And so, exactly what you just said. And the research is that. When somebody has an accepting family and an accepting community, um, the rate of suicide drops to about 1% above average. So a huge, huge drop um, in just social acceptance. Um, There are other factors though. There is the dysphoria around um, our genitals or whatever other part of our body that generates the dysphoria. And that's what surgery is for. Is to the degree possible, right? Yeah. And um, surgery has helped me beyond anything I would have anticipated in terms of my own self-acceptance.
1: Right. I agree because that can finally be me. Exactly. Who I've always been. I just felt like I grew up wearing a costume.
2: Exactly. That's exactly right. I My way of thinking of it is because um, I like to swim too. And so when I'm in the, the women's locker room at the Y, and my genitals look like all the other women's in the locker room. I don't, I feel like I'm not a fraud and, and I would not go into the women's locker room uh, before my surgery. I would go into the family changing station because I would not go into the men's locker room either.
1: Right. It's not safe.
2: Yeah, not at all safe.
1: Well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, Erica. It's, I am so in awe of you and your story and um, being able to meet you and have a, a heart-to-heart conversation like this has just been very empowering at a personal level. So thank you.
2: And for me, I told my partner about you after we met last time, and she said, oh, do you think we can be friends? And I said, yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Same. So,
1: that was the first thing I told my wife. I was like, she was amazing.
2: <laughs> yeah, and, and so we go to Portland occasionally less so with COVID, right? But yes. uh, <laughs> there will be a post-COVID time and we'll come down and visit. That
1: sounds fantastic,
2: Erica. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. Bennett Pendleton is a registered nurse at the Providence Portland Medical Center in Oregon. Erica Lawrence is a licensed marriage and family therapist who works as a crisis counselor at the Providence Hospital Centralia in Washington State. Our deep thanks to them both. Hear Me Now stories are edited by Allison Jakes and Mike Addis and produced by Scott Acord and Melody Fawcett. We have research help from Seema Bhakta, Sarah Viscuso, Amanda Schwartz and Heather Martin. the executive producer. Is Michael Drummond. We'd love to hear from you. Write to us at, humancaring at providence.org. The Hear Me Now podcast is a production of the Providence Institute for Human Caring on the web at instituteforhumancaring.org. Our theme music was written by Roger Neal. I'm Sean Collins, inviting you to join us for the next Hear Me Now podcast, and reminding you to subscribe wherever you get audio on demand. Thanks for listening. Be well.